Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast once again today, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. You may know him as host of the Monday Match Analysis Show. You may also know him as the host of Three, a tennis show, a fellow Tennis Channel Podcast Network podcaster, and my eyebrowed nemesis. It's Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the program. How are you doing today, my friend? Great to be back. I'm fired up. I am wondering how many I have to do to get a polo like that. It's absolute (laughs) fire. And I'm, you know, I'm a little jealous over here. You know, all you had to do is... a number. No, I... I think you've hit that number. I like to say five is the threshold. If I've podcasted with you five times, A, it means I like you. Uh, B, it mean, that's like my threshold of if I have any romantic interest in someone, it's like I've invited you back on the f- podcast five times. And yes, I emphasize the romantic there with you, Gil. I appreciate that you went sleeveless for today's podcast. But <laughs> no, all you had to do is ask. I had a player that shall remain nameless that asked me to send him or her a hooded sweatshirt that had the Cracked Rackets logo on it, and I did because I was like, are you serious? Like, why didn't you just ask? Of course I will do that. Expect some Cracked Rackets merch heading your way. That one's on me. I apologize for that. Love it. What, what a! I love the hospitality. You come on this podcast, you get you get gifts. It's unbelievable. Yeah, let's well, do it. Let's it, well, the thing is, you get gifts because you've come on five times. Yet you've spent twenty four hours of your life with me, and so you know it's the that least is the I, math. That's yeah. the accurate math. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It checks out. And in in reality, I hope it goes to Jenna. I hope she takes it with her, the crack rackets gear. <laughs> then you never see it again. That's what I'm banking on. But I'm glad to hear you're in a good mood. I have a tangent before we get into today's podcast and on the show we are talking about our top 10 men's singles contenders for the 2021 Wimbledon crown worth noting I tweeted out my top 10 list I said I was stealing your bit let's be clear it's not Gil's bit but he certainly crystallized it I'd say in the tennis format so you know gotta gotta kiss the ring show respect where it's due but before we get to that I've got a smile on my face because I did something today that I'm embarrassed to say I haven't done in probably six months. And I think anyone that's listening to this podcast, anyone who's interested in tennis does this, I would say at least once a week when you're in your prime. And that's go on a YouTube deep dive of tennis highlights and just watching players, watching prime matches, doing something I hadn't done. And look, when you're trying to do this job daily, you got to focus on what's happening in the moment. I'm watching... Four hours, I would say, of tennis a day. It's a burden and a blessing. I don't have time to go back sometimes and watch, you know, additional highlights. I once did it at like 4 a.m. and Westoff walked out of his room and caught me watching tennis on like our living room couch. And he goes, Alex, like, are you are you watching tennis right now? And I swear to God, I would have rather had him catch me watching. But I was like, yeah, like I, <laughs> I am like, it's true. You caught me watching. I just need to make sure I still liked it. And I had one of those feelings today because with the Olympics coming up, I was like, let me go watch some Olympic highlights. A, 
I can't believe I had forgotten about the Miss Djokovic overhead in the 2008 Olymp- uh, 2008 I think Olympic semifinals. Djokovic Nadal. It's the match point. Djokovic makes the first overhead, has an overhead on top of the net, and shanks it wide. And I'm like, oh yeah, like I can't believe I've forgotten about that. And then B, I just went back and watched Murray Del Potro 2016 final, which I swear to God that first set that's as good of tennis as you're going to find. Period in any match. Anyways. The reason I bring up this tangent, something we don't talk about often enough here at Cracked Rackets, and just curious, and I want to know what our listeners think, so please tweet at us, at Gil underscore Gross, at Great Shot Pod. How frequently are you going on deep dives? Who's the player you'd gravitate towards? Because for me, it's still always Andy Murray. I'm, I'm kind of with you that it's been a, a really long time for me, and it feels like a lot of the time when I'm looking up highlights, it's like, it's a very like lesser known player and I'm trying to check out their game. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, my guy's Ferrer. Like yeah. I, that's, that's my dude. Um, and I just, you know, look up him beating an injured Nadal at, I think the 2012 Australian open. <laughs> I, I pretend that Nadal wasn't injured as I watch. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that. That's an interesting player to choose. Uh, to choose, and it's funny. I was looking up some stuff today or earlier in the week. The 500 win club. There are 53 players who have hit 500 wins, and you know, if you hit that number, should you be considered automatically for the Hall of Fame? And just starting to think about the Hall of Fame arguments. I think David Ferrer is such a fascinating test case because there are. I think we've talked about this before, but there are purists yeah. who say no. There are hard, you know, people who follow day in day out who say you. Can't can't tell the story of the 2010s without including Ferrer in that discussion. Interesting that that's who you turn to. I hope they show the highlights of him ripping a pack of cigarettes before every match, as per the rumor. Although, for the record, that rumor's just not true. Like, it was that was my favorite rumor of the 2010s and the late aughts that, like, he was just chain smoking, then running five miles on the treadmill beforehand. I would say only half of that was true. I, I bet he, you know. I bet he some. I, he had I'm a cigarette sure once, and they were like, "Whoa!" Right. No, I, I bet he like smoked occasionally, but there was no way he was just like smoking. I, I wouldn't even say a pack a day if I were a betting man. <laughs> I'd say under a pack a day. But I'll tell you what is true: he would sometimes run mm-hmm. after his matches. Mm-hmm. Like he would be like, "Well, I didn't run enough. Like that was quick." Especially the first week of Grand Slams, he would start running around the grounds. Like he was a total psycho. Yeah, no, Guy is an absolute monster. I mean, the reason I gravitate towards Murray is those emotional outbursts. I feel them. That was me on the tennis court. And just, it was a little bit sad because watching Murray, I'm like, man, he never used to slice backhands. And that's what he has to do so frequently now. And you're just, a part of me inside dies every time I watch those highlights. I'm like, no, it's over. Also, I watched 2000, or it was, I think, 2000 Olympics Federer. And, like, when I say he's got this big forehand backswing and this loopy backhand, and he Mm. just kind of, like, quickly tosses and jumps into his serve. It's not this beautifully Mm -hmm. formulaic serving motion that he has now. It was kind of delightful. I also watched him 2004, 2006. Like I said, today was Deep Dive Central here at Cracked Rackets HQ as I was doing my research for this podcast. And, like, anyone—well, here's the thing. 38-year-old Roger Federer beats 21-year-old Roger Federer. 
27-year-old Roger Federer is so much better than 35, 36, 37-year-old Roger. And to anyone who thinks, no, that's not the case, he got better with age, go watch him athletically in those years. That's mm-hmm. just one of the, those things you forget. He kind of had a little girth to him. He was a little meatier back in the day, Gil. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. And I, I think it's true for all three. Like, I, I know we like to say, like, is is could Novak now beat 2011 Novak? And I'm always like, no. And, you know, the <laughs> same thing for Nadal. I think probably Nadal's prime, I want to say, like, pre-injury 2009, right? Like the 2008, 2009 maybe for him in terms of what his athletic prime is. Yeah, these guys aren't as fast anymore. Like, yeah. they're just not the same athletes. And they're, they've used their greatness to – to cope with it in certain ways, like bolstering up their serve and for Federer, just shortening points to, you know, the fullest extent possible. But yeah, these guys used to be better. Well, I think this is a good way to get into our top 10 contenders conversation because let's start with Novak Djokovic. I'm going to disagree with you, Gil. And again, what we're going to be doing in this list is going through our top 10 contenders to win the 2021 uh, Wimbledon Gentlemen's Singles title. I think the place any educated tennis fan would start is with Novak Djokovic, who, in my opinion, enters this Grand Slam as the heftiest favorite since probably the 2016 Australian Open. He was coming off of that 55-16 and 16, uh, 2015 year where he seemingly won everything uh, throughout the course of the season. He then, of course, goes on, I believe, to win that 2016 Australian Open title. He goes on to win the 2016 French Open. That was the Novak Slam. Uh I would say you probably have to go back to then to to consider when he was considered this big of a favorite. There's no Rafael Nadal in the draw. We'll get to the Federer conversation, I'm sure, later. But certainly, given his loss to FAA in Hala, given the fact that he's played fewer than 10 matches in the past year and a half, it's just not... It's not right to consider him prime Federer anymore. It'd be disingenuous to just throw him carte blanche at number two on your contenders list. It's Novak Djokovic's slam to lose, and I think the numbers from this season reflect that fact. You look at what he's accomplished this year, 50-8 and eight in his last 52 weeks. You look at, you know, 2021 specifically, he's 26-3. and three. He's number one in overall ELO, grass court ELO, 2021 ELO. He's in the top 15 club, which means top 15 in both hold and break percentage. And you look at the numbers, Gil, and here's where I want to disagree with your point. That was a long preface to get to this. His mm-hmm. service number numbers in particular this season. He's making 66% of his first serve. That's a percent higher than his career average. He's winning about 74% of his first serve points. That's his career average. 55% of his second serve points. That's his career average. Winning 43.9% of his return points. That's higher than the 42.2 he has for his career in ATP level matches. I think we've seen shades of prime Novak Djokovic this season. In particular, the thing that jumps out those last three rounds at the French Open, and I don't think we've talked on a podcast since then, but the level he hit against Berrettini to close out that match, and I actually think that was the closest he was pushed throughout that French Open. Then the level he showed against Nadal, silly. The level he showed in those last three sets against Tsitsipas, he was able to channel that 2011, 2015 athleticism. Then you throw in the new and improved Novak Djokovic first serve, the skills he's gathered along the way. 
I think this is the most dangerous version of Novak Djokovic. I don't think he's diminished enough physically to where the experience and just polish he's gained from a skill set perspective have been offset. I think he reached a level that you're just reminded why his best might be better than everyone else's at the French Open, and I expect it to carry over here. He's my prohibitive favorite. What say you? Yeah, he's certainly a prohibitive favorite. To to go back to kind of where is he at compared to where he's been in his career, he is most definitely aging at the rate of uh, uh, that a glacier melts in Alaska. I don't know if that's a bad <laughs> analogy. Really slow is what I'm trying to say. Like the aging <laughs> process not happening uh, very quickly for Novak. Great news for him and his fans. He's still moving explosively around the court. And I agree with you about about the French Open run. It's as good as it gets. You can't. It doesn't get much better than that. Plain and simple. Uh, I, I would say the the place to look if you're looking for like decline is he's not really playing the long physical outlasting rallies anymore now he may be winning some of the longer rallies but you know even against like Nadal they're just not playing the same kind of rallies that they used to and I think if if Nadal was in a position to put uh, to push Djokovic into those rallies then I think it would we'd see something interesting I'm not sure what would happen um, mm-hmm. what do you think no, so to push back and just to compare to his 2011 numbers, his first serve win percentage, 0.4% lower. His second serve win percentage, 0.3% lower. His service point ones, 0.3% lower. His return points, 1.7% lower. So again, nothing statistically significant differing this season from that 2011 season. I agree with you in the sense that he doesn't play that point routinely, but I think those last three matches at the French Open are a testament to the fact that he's still got that in the queue, right? If he needs mm-hmm. to bring out that brand of tennis, he can do it. And why I would push back on Nadal getting worse over time as well, there's an efficiency factor to them that they didn't have early in their careers. They could coast on that physicality, and for Nadal... A, I just don't think he leaves his backhand as short on the court as he used to be. I think he's more efficient with his placement of shots. I think when he creates an opening, he's more willing to move forward now than he was in the past. Now, I do think his serve has definitely diminished. And I do think, obviously, athletically, that Nadal peak, there was a degree of physicality the game had never seen beforehand. And so I think it that's It helped a- him mentally, if I, can, true. if I can jump in. When, when he was playing that physical brand of tennis— I, I felt he was a mentally stronger player. Yeah, that's fair. And welcome to 3-3-3, three, 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 a tennis show. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... Again, I, I suppose that's an argument for a different time. The point being, yeah. why is Djokovic a prohibitive favorite? Because that Novak Djokovic only had two people who could compete with him. And it was a prime Rafael Nadal and an informed Roger Federer, particularly on these grass courts. Now, again, why is Djokovic such a prohibitive favorite? It starts with his own performances, and it's worth noting. He's got an 83% win percentage in his career in ATP matches. This is the joke, by the way. This is where you're building that goat case, and I think we've put it to bed for for a while, but an 84% win percentage on hard courts, 81% win percentage on clay courts, 84% win percentage on grass courts. He's 95 and 18 overall in his career. His serve does become more effective and his return status while it drops down to break opponents 26% of the time on grass courts. That means if he was only playing grass court tennis, he'd still be a top 15 returner on tour. That's ridiculous. Unbelievable. Yeah. Djokovic, I mean, 
the fact that he's this close to his prime and you have so many unproven other players in the draw in terms of their grass court experience, plus the fact there's no Nadal, plus the fact that, in my opinion, it's a diminished Federer, that's what makes him such a prohibitive favorite, right? Even beyond anything—I mean, it is everything he's doing on the court, plus all the uh, the non-Djokovic factors. It's the perfect crescendo. Yeah, I would point to, one, how big and how well he's serving. And I think the last two years we've seen that in Australia, which is definitely conditions-wise the closest slam to to what we're going to see at Wimbledon. A little bit low bouncing, very quick. And you see Novak hitting like the 105-mile-per-hour slice serve as a second serve, uh, which is so effective. He led the the field, the men's field, in aces uh, in Australia. Like these things just translates so well into his grass prospects but then defense and movement and ever since Andy Murray um kind of diminished no one can touch Novak when it comes to moving and defending on grass I just don't think anyone's even close to being there so if you discount the 27 withdrawal against Tomas Burdich Novak has won Wimbledon four out of the last five times he's played it And that just feels about right. It it seems when he's been at his best, he has not lost at this event in a very long time. In the past decade of grass court events, Novak Djokovic has lost seven total grass court matches. Here's who those seven losses are to, Gil. It's laughable. Federer, Murray, Delpo, Murray, Sam Querrey, Tomas Burdich, Marin Cilic. Like... All right, you want to laugh at the query thing? Uh, we remember slamming Sammy, that 2016 Wimbledon, serving big, hitting the big forehand. He's obviously a Wimbledon uh, quarterfinalist, I believe. Did he make the semis that year? Might have even made the semis uh, as well. The point being, that that's a joke. It was also elbow injury, yep. Novak, uh, and and, de- and demotivated Novak. Yeah. No, you're right. Most, Well, all of his Wimbledon losses in recent times can be explained, which is a <laughs> scary thing. No, it's just like, it's laughable. Yeah, and again, the Burdich match he withdraws from in 2017. And so, like, okay, he you take those two off the list, it's five. And, like, that's just ridiculous. That speaks to how successful Novak Djokovic has been across surfaces. He's the same player. He's able to impose a physical brand of tennis on these grass courts that we've never seen before. And again, I, I actually think it's a quality Daniil Medvedev shares, and we'll get to that when we get to him on this list. But I mean, just to wrap up final thoughts on Novak Djokovic, I'm going to be shocked. We're, we're doing a segment where, you know, the story coming out of the first week, uh, there's going to be a panel. You'll all be able to read it. Gil's going to be a part of that panel. The story coming out of the first week is probably going to be Oh my God, Novak Djokovic is going to have 20 slams one week from now. What do we do as a tennis universe when that fact happens? Are we ready for the ensuing chaos? All of those details. Like, 20's on the table. Let's be clear. If he does not uh, leave Wimbledon with 20 titles, that's an opportunity missed. Like, I I guess Mm -hmm. let's play the devil's advocate side. What is the case against Novak Djokovic? I heard someone say physical fatigue and that the French Open can be draining. It's Novak Djokovic we're talking about here. Like, he's winning. You don't have to pencil it. Sharpie that bad boy in. Look, it's hard to channel double. 
It's only two weeks. We've seen, I think, a large part of why Nadal has struggled early on in Wimbledon is because he's coming off this grueling clay court season where he's going deep in every tournament and playing Barcelona because it's in Spain, blah, blah, blah. Not trying to make excuses, but I, I just think Nadal's a better grass court player than his results would at Wimbledon would, would show because of its spot in the calendar. Uh, so, look, it, arguments against Novak – this is a hard thing to do. It's hard to win the French, show up in two weeks. It's grass. Um, and then the second thing is pressure, expectation, something that Novak has just squashed uh, in, in his late career. I mean, early in his career, there were problems with losing a lot of major finals. And uh, even earlier than that, with withdrawing from matches when things got tough and, and you know, it was hot. R recently, that has not, at all gotten in his way. So maybe with on the brink of 20, with everyone saying he's the prohibitive favorite, maybe that comes into play. Those are your arguments against Novak, but they're not overly strong. Yeah, and the counters to them quickly are, you know, there have been 15 weeks-ish since the Australian Open ended. He's competed in six of them. Like, he's had nine weeks off. He's taken care of his body. He's going to be just fine. We saw him win the title in Belgrade, play three consecutive weeks of tennis, end with Berrettini, Nadal, Tsitsipas, and look just fine doing so. And so, again, I, I can't remember a prohibitive favorite to the extent with which Novak Djokovic is in this event. What's the, like, it is 2016 Australian Open. Like, I was so sure he was going to win it. He did. Other than that, I, I really can't think of one because, I, like, again, I guess let's move on to – well, I, any any response to that and then we can move on. Wimbledon 2018 for, for Roger maybe? But no, because Djokovic was in the draw. So it's like I, – no. I, like, I can't say that and why – again, this gets us to the Roger portion of the conversation. We can go there next. I don't have so I, I broke this down into tiers because as our crack rackets fans know, any excuse to make tiers, I'm gonna take them here. And I have four tiers of contenders in my top ten. I have Djokovic, then I have in my notes huge fing gap. Just to be clear, that's the sort of notes I make for myself. And then, you know, after that, I have one player, then I have a tiny gap, then I have a group of five players, then I have another gap, and then I have my last group of contenders. Roger Federer's not in the first group. He's not in the second group. He's not even in the third group for me. I have him down in the tier with the FAAs and Umbears of the world in that fourth tier of category. And honestly, that's more out of respect than anything else, Gil, given we know what Roger Federer is capable of at Wimbledon. Obviously, he's won this event more than any other player in history. And just the fact that he did win his first three matches at the French Open, so he had that going for him. A three-set loss in Hala in your first grass court event in more than a year, in more than two years, I suppose. Uh, two FAA is really not that bad. But, like, what's the case for Roger winning seven in a row? Do I have him too low on my list? I have him eighth. I'm curious where you have him. I, I have him third, and don't get me Interesting. wrong. Interesting. But, it, I mean, me let's wrong. be clear. It's such a big gap between Djokovic and everyone else. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I felt pretty confident about who I have at number two. I don't know if I – I guess I'll keep that to myself and we'll you – know, I think we're going to agree. Okay. So uh, number number two I was confident with. As soon as I hit number three, it was like, uh <laughs> – yeah, I did not I did not know uh, which direction to go. But I went with Roger. 
a lot of it was first of all the FAA loss I, I'm just it doesn't really concern me I don't know why I think FAA was at a top 10 level there I don't know why Roger got so negative and unbelievably down on himself so quickly can't see that happening again at Wimbledon and then just going off the eye test what we saw first three matches on clay assuming he'll be uh he'll be more fit um and then it's just like well okay I like him to win early on at Wimbledon and then let's say we're in the same place. We're going into a fourth round match and Federer has just won three matches on uh, on grass. Am I going to favor him um, against the the guys who who he would likely play in a quarterfinal in, in all likelihood, unless it's Novak? I look at most of the players there, probably. And the draw could open up. Uh, see, that's the interesting question, and this is why, you know, again, we try to go in order sometimes, but it feels like the Federer question is the next one. I don't favor him against any of those other players. Like, three out of five sets, you really think physically he's going to be able to hang with the Neil Medvedev, even in a grass court match. Medvedev's got the one thing, you know, again, you need to have the big weapon to hurt Federer with. Well, Medvedev does have that serve, and there is something to playing Roger Federer at Wimbledon, the impact that has on every player, but... You know, against a Medvedev, or the weight of that Rublev forehand over the course of three hours, or I don't, I'll, yeah. I'll give away number two. I got it. Okay. Um, Matteo Berrettini is my number two, and I'm like pretty confident that if it's not Novak Djokovic, it's going to be Berrettini winning the title because. I just think there's an assertiveness to some of these next-gen guys, the heaviness with which they play. I just don't know if Roger can hang with that over the course of three hours anymore. I mean, again, you look at three of the players who have beaten him this year. FAA hits, you know, one of the heaviest balls on tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nicolas Basilashvili, one of the heaviest balls on tour. He knocks off Federer, Federer in Doha as well. The Matteo Berrettini is a withdraw, but let's be honest, Berrettini probably beats him at the French Open. And I know grass is not clay court tennis, and I'll get into what, the numbers for think, Berrettini What do you think soon. the odds would have been on that match, uh, Vegas? And I, I know that doesn't mean that that's not the Gruskin pick, but I'm asking you, no, what do you think No, probably minus 225. Probably, oh, oh, in on grass courts? No, uh, on clay in that match with, with Federer going into that match. What, I would say Berrettini odds? would have been minus 225. I would have said something around that okay. because I think, I think like all of the money – see, but I think all of the money would have pushed towards Berrettini towards the end then because just, again, the pace, the heaviness. Roger Federer doesn't want to be tracking down these massive forehands, and it's a little harder for him to get to that corner and get out of it at this point. Now, again, it's grass court tennis. I get it. His aggression on the return, and we have seen pronounced aggression from him since he's made his return. That benefits you on a grass court. The precision of that serve, of course, when click. It's going to be as good as anyone's, but you look for him in the eight matches he's played in his last 52 weeks. You know, he's won 72%, uh, 73% of his first serve points. He's holding 87% of the time. Those are top 20 numbers. They're not the top five numbers we're accustomed out of, to out of him. Uh, right, and I get it. Like, there's nothing in Roger Federer's results that suggests that he can go deep at Wimbledon. There's absolutely nothing because he just hasn't been there, plain and simple. His serve hasn't been good enough. He hasn't been fit enough. But you put him on a grass court, the points are going to be short. The weather's going to be nice, unlike how it was against Dominic <laughs> Kepfer. Uh, whenever Roger Federer plays at night in humidity past the age of 35, it has been huge trouble. They'll close but, the roof if they have to. 
Yeah, <laughs> you, you know it. So yeah. uh, I just, I don't see fitness as that big of a barrier. I'm more concerned about his serve, to be honest, mm -hmm. which has just been getting kind of punished by, by some of these aggressive returners. Uh, but it's like, okay, am I, am I really going to think that Roger Federer is not going to figure out his serve here? Would I be more surprised if he never figures out his serve than if he did figure out his serve? I'd be more surprised if he didn't. So that's why I'm just, man, I, I just, I have trouble betting against him here based on some of the flashes he's shown and just a feeling that he's going to put it together uh, and wind up in the second week of Wimbledon and people are going to be like, hey, this kind of looks like Roger Federer right now. And towards the tail end of the tournament, do I think it'll catch up with him? Yes. Do I think he can beat Novak? Absolutely not. But, you know, again, this this field, you got a lot of guys lacking grass chops mm -hmm. and Federer has that. Well, that's the big thing. As we go through this list of contenders, the number of them that have played fewer than not only 50, but fewer than 30 grass court matches in their career, it's astronomical. And it's mm -hmm. it's noticeable and impactful, certainly in the, in the tennis we are going to see played. But here's my final thought exercise on Federer. And again, I have him eighth on my list. You have him third. If he plays a five-set match in the third round, I don't know who it's going to be against, but let's just say it goes five. Is he automatically an underdog in your mind in his fourth round match? The answer to me is yes, and that's why I can't have him higher than eighth on this list and higher than tier four. Yes, he he's done. He he must play short matches in the early rounds or or he will be finished. And, and, and so that's, again, why I have him a little lower. But I gave a spoiler there. Uh, the guy who I have in a tier by himself as my number two player is Matteo Berrettini who, I'm not going to lie, I, we did a mini-break podcast on Tuesday. We called it an overreaction Tuesday, and that's due to the fact that, as we've both referred to, really small sample size of grass court matches to go off of. You don't have a 2020 season to turn to. We've learned about things like pandemic, vaccination rates, and PPE, and you know stimulus checks. All these different things have entered our vernacular since uh, the last grass court season was played, and obviously a bunch of players have taken a bunch of leaps. We have new players in the tennis lexicon as well it's a whole different universe now but a guy who has been consistent with his results across the two seasons a guy who you look at the elo ratings right now via tennis abstract if you look at overall rating this guy Matteo this guy I've already said his name so Matteo Berrettini currently number seven overall he's number four in grass court elo rating which you is a metric to be honest you can throw out right now with how small the sample size is yep. but he's also fourth in overall 2021 elo he's 26 and six on the season you look in his last 52 weeks 34 and 11 overall was made that quarterfinal of Roland Garros you look at his statistics things like hold percentage break percentage first serve win points second serve win percentage they're all higher than his career averages this year I think by every metric you look at Matteo Berrettini has gotten better and of course the one thing that he does have is confidence on these grass courts entering this event he just won the event in Queens Club now you know beat guys like Evans, Demonauer, Murray, Nori. Cam Nori's been excellent of late, and you could make an argument for the honorable mention portion of this podcast. But mm -hmm. again, 
grass court tennis, why is Matteo Berrettini such a big, uh, such a good fit? A, the weight of his serve. He's just going to fire aces. It's going to be that much more effective here than it is on other surfaces. B, the weight of that forehand. Responding to his forehand on this surface, trying to keep your feet under you as you're hitting that ball back is damn near impossible. And if he gets a clean look at a forehand, you have to guess because if he hits behind you on a, on a grass court, you're just not getting there. His slice stays that much lower. He takes takes his chances as a returner. And again, the key for him is he's holding serve. So at worst, he's getting to the tie break. It allows him to have those sort of opportunities to, again, uh, be aggressive as a returner. He's a guy who there are three players right now who have held over 90% of the time. And if you're holding over 90% of the time, you're amongst the best servers in ATP Tour history. It's Rayonich 1, Isner 2, Berrettini 3. Berrettini's got an elite skill. He's got a go-down swinging attitude that you need to have against a guy like Novak Djokovic. And he's also got the sort of power that it's on his terms. If he's landing shots, as we saw in that French Open final, uh, quarterfinal, he's getting to the tiebreaker against Novak. He's pushing that set to the later stages. At least he'll be around at the end. There's also that confidence to him, 18-5 and five overall in grass court matches. He's won two titles on the surface. He's a clear-cut number two to me, Gil. Explain why I'm overreacting, please. Yeah, I, I hate to do this because Good. I'm really high. I'm really high on Berrettini, and I think he's going to—I think if the draw is right, he goes deep at Wimbledon. Yet I find myself kind of fighting people— about Matteo Berrettini because I think we've gone a little bit too far with him. Well, he's not my number it's, two. it's the looks. It's that he's just so good looking and it's like <laughs> everyone's on the Berrettini bandwagon, which credit to him, man. Like I would, I'm jealous of the Alia Tomjanovich thing. There's just, let's put it out there. There's no denying that, but he's got the tennis. He's got the skill set. He's got the linebacker body and yet he's still a fluid mover. It's that's like the craziest part. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Yes. But. He's, he, yes. He's very handsome, very fluid. <laughs> yes. No disagreements. From, Speaks from Italian me, but... too. Like, come <laughs> on. How about this though? I made a, a top 10 power ranking as you did. Mm-hmm. I tried not to look at it by the way. So as not to cheat. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I also, before, I've now looked at yours, but I didn't look at yours either before making mine. I, um, that looks out of resentment, given the grin you have you on your face. I'll tell you this. <laughs> Matteo Berrettini has not beaten a single player in my top 10 on grass. Ha- doesn't have a single win. Now, so while his record is excellent, and he just ripped through the Queens field. I mean, I've never seen someone have a run where nobody could return his serve, and that was that. That was his Queens run. It was just like, okay, well, nobody can return this uh, next title. <laughs> um, yeah, his resume is great. But when he hits the elite tier, which he has five times in 2021, he's played top 10 players five times, and he has one win over Dominic team at the ATP cup, which isn't a great win in 2021 either, to be honest. And it was pretty comprehensive, but he's just not a tier one guy right now. And I think he's a tier two guy. And I think depending on how specific you're being about tier two or tier three, he might be two, he might be three, but I, I like other players better as all around tennis players who can defend, who can return better, who can win rallies, who might also have a serve like Daniil Medvedev and Alexander Zverev also have a serve. So again, I, I'm a fan of Matteo Berrettini. I think he's extremely dangerous at this tournament. I think he's a lock to go pretty deep here. 
but I can't put him at number two. He hasn't, he's not at that level to me yet on any surface. So that's fair. And you look overall in his career, seven and 12 against top 10 opponents. He does have wins, uh, three of them over Dominic team. Obviously that served to the backhand. Clearly mm-hmm. he's found success there. He's also beaten RBA, Zverev and Hatchinov twice. You're right to point out the one in four in 2021. But, you know, again, if we're talking about an elite skill, and I'll line up Medvedev, Zverev, I'd even throw Tsitsipas in this mix, particularly on these grass courts. I just think the serve, the forehand, the ability to move forward, the ability to incorporate slice, drop shot. He's also very cheeky about throwing in that backhand lob when he's on the run. He loves to hit that down-the-line lob over your backhand shoulder uh, passing shot just to, again, stretch you. And he does move so well for someone with that much muscle. I just, look, right now... Who is serving best? Who's playing plus one tennis the best? And who do I trust to hold the serve most? If it's Tsitsi, hold the serve. Hold serve the most. If it's Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, and honestly, I'm going to throw Rublev in there as well with Berrettini. I take the Berrettini service game. And that's why he's number two on my list and just slightly higher than the rest of those guys and in a tier by himself. Again, Djokovic tier one. Then we're talking like the gap in height between me and you. Uh, between <laughs> Come on. I didn't even get a smile for the yeah. listeners at home. Let's be clear. <laughs> I he was, was a little slow. That's on me. Yeah, no, I was slow. Unfazed, I was slow. Unfazed. But uh, <laughs> it's all right. Nevertheless, we're talking a huge gap. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not that. Anyways, huge gap uh, between Djokovic and everyone else. But I do just have to have Berrettini on his own because I do think his best skill right now is executed better on a grass court than the best skills of both those other guys who can do a lot of things. But I think the confidence and honestly, just the the power tennis of Matteo Berrettini He's earned it. Like, I'm not grasping at straws. Two titles in the last two grass court seasons. I I think he's earned that status. And with all of the other uncertainties, you know, Medvedev's never won a title on grass courts. Tsitsipas has never won a title on grass courts. I'm not sure if... I feel like Zverev has at this point. Certainly he's made runs. No, he hasn't. But he's made a final, though, before, uh, I, I think, in Hala. At least one. But the point being... I've seen the success and what it looks like for Berrettini on a grass court. I can't say it to the extent for him that I can't, or for others that I can for him. And that's why he's number two. Yeah. Resume wise, he's class after Djokovic and obviously Federer. And if you're looking at the contenders, right? So, (laughs) so he's class. Uh, I agree with that. I just think there's another level that unfortunately with his return and his movement, he can't quite hit right now. Uh, But, but, you know, in order for a player to extract that, they'll need to drag Berrettini into rallies, which will require effectively returning his serve, which, uh, you know, we saw Novak do it uh, on the clay, and we'll see if someone else can manage to do it on the grass or Novak again. Um, and then, you know, also we'll see if he can win tie breaks because, again, he's going to need to play great players and try to break their serve, which he hasn't quite shown that, that he can do. So it'll be very interesting. You look for him in his career at Wimbledon. It's not an event he's played that frequently, but still, uh, you look for him at Wimbledon thus far. And, you know, again, he's only played the event, I believe, two times. 2018, he loses second round to Jill Simone. 2019, does make the round of 16, beats Schwartzman before getting knocked out by Federer in straight sets. And you remember that 2019 was the introduction to Matteo Berrettini, wins three titles, makes the year-end finals. Mm-hmm. That said... 
We've seen him in a quarterfinal. We've seen him in a slam semifinal. He does have that pedigree as well. I feel good about my pick. I think your second pick is going to be the guy I have third on the list, the leader of that third tier. And honestly, with your talking, I'm going to make an adjustment. I'm going to move Berrettini just to the top of tier two. We're going to condense the tiers. We're doing a little uh, ver- uh, no, no, horizontal integration here of my list. No, no, no. This is vertical integration. Vertical integration here on my list. Berrettini is going to be the leader of tier two. We're going to remove the tiny gap. And I'm going to say Daniil Medvedev's my third guy. I feel like he's going to be number two on your list. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the surface provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Daniil Medvedev is my number two. And, and just for the record, Berrettini's at number five for me. Um, five? I still, yeah. Oh. There's one guy. What? Uh, look, we covered Djokovic and Federer and now Medvedev. So now there's, there's only <laughs> oh, yeah. one more player. No, I forgot about I forgot about Federer. I was like, I had Federer <laughs> at eight. But now, yeah, all right. And you're going to have Zverev at four. Now, spoiler alert. I Inferring is what I like to do here at Cracked Rock. Or Pass at four. Save that mystery. That's what we call okay. a tease in the business. Mm. But make the case for Medvedev. Here's my case for Medvedev. It's pretty simple. If you look at surfaces that play like Wimbledon, because we have so little grass court results to rely on, we have to resort to finding similar surfaces. Nothing is quite the grass in terms of the movement. But we do have surfaces that bounce low and play fast. And Medvedev has completely destroyed at these events. He's he's raked uh, all of them. Australian Open finalist, obviously. Novak is the only player, by the way, who can brandish better results at, at most of these events. But uh, Medvedev, Australian Open finalist, Shanghai champion, ATP finals champion, go back to 2019, Cincinnati champion. Like these are all of the big events that play fast and bounce low. And Medvedev has been so good at these events. And that's kind of all I need to see. Uh, I know he hasn't done it on grass. He hasn't really had a chance to. Uh, and I, I know he loses to the very dangerous Jan Lennard Struff, who seems to beat everyone who um, is, you know, you're trying to be high on it. Then they lose to Struff. It's just kind of <laughs> what happens in tennis. Uh, but I'm throwing that, you know, I'm not putting too much stock into that. And I'm feeling really good about Daniil Medvedev with his serve, his return, his flat hitting, which gives him the offense that he needs from the baseline. The backhand is a weapon. 
Um, and it's just a matter of, of how well he's able to move on the surface. End of the 2018 season, we did a mini break naming Jan Leonard Struve, one of our most interesting players to watch over the final three months. And honest to God, that podcast has aged beautifully. I stand by everything I said there. Um, anyways, you talk for Daniil Medvedev. He's only played three Wimbledon main draws in his career. Now, it's worth noting all three of his losses came in five sets, and he's actually had some breakthrough moments in his career at this event, the big one being first Grand Slam we ever covered here on the podcast for Cracked Rackets 2017 Wimbledon. He ends up beating Stan Wawrinka in the first round before losing in five to Bemelmans. The next year beats <laughs> Chorich first round before losing in the third round in five to Adrian Manorino in 2019. Beats Lorenzi, beats Popperin before losing in five to David Goffin. What you love to hear about that is, again, he's able to impose his physicality in these five-set matches, even on these grass courts. It's Djokovician in the way he's able to do it. It really is. He is one of those few guys that can lull you into playing baseline tennis on a grass court. And then he's got the John Isner first serve, right? The fact that he is six foot six can hit his spots, play this big plus one game. I'm fascinated to watch his match against Kasparu tomorrow to see if he does have the aggression, if he is able to play first strike, win points easy enough in those short rallies, which is what you have to be able to mix in to win seven matches at Wimbledon. But I mean, you look for him overall, and I believe, if memory serves me correct, he's 19 and 11 in his career in ATP Tour level matches on grass, 29 and 15 overall. If you want to throw in some of the challenger level matches he's played as well. Again, it's not the biggest sample size, but I agree with you. He's got the physical profile of a player you know is going to have success on grass. You always want to bet on Daniil Medvedev in the best of five set format. Even with the limited Wimbledons we've seen, I absolutely think Daniil Medvedev has earned the trust to be there at the late stages of the slam. And what about the fact, if we're talking about sample size, that before the summer of 2019, he was just so different. Like he wasn't even a patient player. I, I saw him as kind of like uh, someone who has like slaps his forehand and thinks mm-hmm. his forehand is way better than it is. And he just totally reeled it in and, you know, became a different player. So it's even a smaller sample size than we think. It's zero Wimbledons. We've seen zero Wimbledons of the kind of the modern of this version of Medvedev. Yeah, because the 2019 yes. fall was or summer slash fall was the breakthrough. You're absolutely right. This is a Daniil Medvedev. With confidence. This is a Daniil Medvedev who you look at the last five slam or four. I'm going to throw out that French Open first round loss to Fucevic because since he's made the quarterfinals and, you know, was the quietest semifinal in history at the U.S. Open last year. It feels like we've forgotten how easily he made the finals of this year's Australian Open as well. And it's just, again, he finds solutions in a best of five set match. His ability to hit that big serve, he, I've said it before, he's part of that top 16, uh, 15. Club, the six guys who are top 15 in both hold and break percentage Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Zverev, Rublev, and then the GOAT, aka Aslan Karatsev. That feels right uh, over these past, you know, obviously Karatsev excluded. That's the list he belongs on. And his ability to, if you're serving and volleying, that return is going at your shoes. And he's going to track down your first volley, get a look at a second passing shot. You can't give Daniil Medvedev two looks at passes. He also does have the ability to hit a little serve and volley, to mix in the drop shot, to play the angles, to hit the open space. He has the length you want on a grass court as well to beat you to the spot. 
I still think the Berrettini serve, as we mentioned, is the better service game. So that's why I have him a bit above Medvedev because there are times Medvedev just gets tentative and plays with his food a little bit much, and that's not Matteo Berrettini. I can tell you exactly what Matteo Berrettini is going to try and do in every point he plays, and there, that's a decisiveness you need on a grass court. That would be my one hesitation with Neil Medvedev. Is he decisive enough in the big moments? Is he going to be willing to be the aggressor, take some chances when the pressure's against Against him because if he doesn't, it's just really hard to win seven matches at Wimbledon playing on your back foot. No, he he can't be defensive. I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I think the best version of Medvedev, he uh, he's on top of the baseline, and I know he he's not always there, but I think when he's when he's right, he's on top of the baseline and he's changing direction all the time. He's going down the line constantly because he has the timing to do it, and he he'll redirect your pace. Uh, he's coming to net as well. Uh, you know, he, he he does need to be the aggressive Daniil Medvedev. That that does exist. Yeah, if you were to make tiers on your list, because that's, again, welcome to the Crack Racket shows. That's what we do. I respect tiers. I like tiers. Uh, nothing is wrong with a good tier. By the way, a good cry every day, some tears in your life. Isn't that what Jimmy V says? He's like, a good tear. Now, that's a good day. Uh, that's yeah. how this, you know, uh, this feature, whatever it is. I think that a good, you got to be laughed. You got to find yourself brought to tears. Now, that's a good day, um, or however it goes. Anyways, um you again i have it's really interesting it's nitpicking because uh, i think you have zverev next on your list i have zverev next on my list as well or at least you know you have federer next but zverev rounds out your top 5 zverev rounds out uh my top 4 is there like again what's your gaps look like is there a group of guys i put all of those next geners from you know the big 5 i suppose next geners medvedev tsitsipas virev berrettini rublev all on the same tier plus one player those all all those guys are the same degree of eh like maybe in terms of winning it right like is i guess do you feel particularly confident like if djokovic gets knocked out of the tournament is medvedev your clear cut favorite to what degree of confidence do you have there somewhat confident you know okay. like i i'm not really thinking about picking anyone else mm-hmm. but i got it obviously the draw plays in plays sure. in here but but yeah medvedev i would feel pretty good about that let's say you knock djokovic and medvedev out of the tournament now i'm i gotta be honest with you i'm pulling my hair out here <laughs> i have no clue who's gonna win like i have no idea because then then you start thinking about attrition with Federer and you know, can he play seven matches? And Zverev, who knows what version you get? Berrettini, I'm just, I just don't feel like he has the, the, the game to to beat elite players maybe twice in in best of five. Uh, and then Tsitsipas just so unproven on the grass. Yeah, the, the now you're now really you're in the Chilich tier. Now I'm talking about Rublev. You know who would win? Do you know who would win if, if Medvedev and Joe? Let's say, like, they both had to withdraw. John Isner. You go and bear. Oh, <laughs> we'll get to the Ugo section. We'll get to the Ugo okay, section, okay. certainly. But again, Medvedev number two for you, Medvedev number three for me. Uh, you mentioned your fact uh, that number three for you, Roger Federer. We already discussed him. Uh, Medvedev's my number three. Uh, excuse me, Zverev, my number four. I believe he's number four for you as well. And I feel like every time mm-hmm. we get you on the podcast, we end up doing 10 minutes on Zverev. So we can keep this one condensed this time. I think everyone knows my thoughts on him make the case for him here at this Wimbledon 
Is it, a, the, is it just an attrition thing? It's just like this guy just survives, and if you're around in the second week, you inherently have a higher shot to win than everyone else. I mean, I think that, you know, with his first serve, it kind of takes you through the first couple rounds at Wimbledon generally. Uh, I don't know if that, that hasn't always been true. It's very tough draw against your guy, Yuri Vesely, in 2019. Uh, too, uh, soon, but, too soon. Too <laughs> soon. I guess the case for Zverev is that he wasn't really right in 2018 or 2019. He was right in 2017. Um, and that's when when he had uh, he, he made the fourth round, I believe, and lost to Milos Raonic in five sets. So that's kind of when you got the right version of Zverev. And the right version of Zverev has that that grass court first serve, but also is just you know an excellent uh, defensive returner, will get the ball back and has a transition game and uses his forehand aggressively and comes forward and, and should have the game to do well on grass just to pair his baseline game with his serve. It's just if he gets passive, which he tends to do, this is a surface that that he will not beat 30 players in the draw playing passive. On clay, he beats a good – maybe he beats you know every player in the draw other than 10. If he gets passive on clay, if he gets passive on grass, it's lights out against so many players. So it becomes a, how is Alexander going to play? And it's just very unpredictable. Yeah, he's made fourth round or further at eight of the last nine majors. He's made uh, semifinals or further at three out of the last five you know, the match that always sticks with me is, again, that 27 Wimbledon fourth-round loss he had to Milos Raonic in five sets. That was a match he should have won in four, and I feel like he wins there. Who knows what the next year and a half looks like for him because, again, just looking for that slam breakthrough for so long, uh, who knows what would have happened. I mean, things obviously have gone pretty well for him since, but just physically, three out of five sets, it's really hard to beat him. Like, it just is. And just, he has been built for this format. And he's such a good returner that regardless of surface, he puts so much pressure on you with his first strike. Mm-hmm. That backhand's going to stay low. It's going to rip through these grass courts. He has gotten better and better as a volleyer. And you're right, in the big moments under pressure with a passing shot, he'll leave you a very attackable first volley. And he'll give you a shot at a second pass. But, like, bet against him in the first week at your own peril. And, again, if the argument is Djokovic is so far ahead of the pack, who knows what end, like, it's his to lose. Well, if he does lose, you turn to the players who are just still alive at that point. And more likely than anyone else, perhaps, in the draw, you can bet on Alex Zverev to still be alive in the second week of this slam. He's got all the physical tools. He's got the skill set as well. He's been fine on grass courts in his career. That three-set loss to Ugo Umber, obviously, I think, has appreciated with value, given that Umber won the title. Yeah, number four on my list, uh, like number five on yours. Or yeah, number five, uh, number four on yours feels about right. Yeah, I'm just gonna say while I think he can have a good tournament, clearly based on where I I ranked him, I think if Zverev is actually vulnerable early in a slam, which he which I know he hasn't been, I think it's this one. I think it's Wimbledon. Yeah, that's fair. Again, because we just don't know how big of a sample size. We just don't know exactly what Alex Zverev looks like in full-form grass court tennis. And again, you look for Zverev, who 
Right now, I, I talked about it earlier that five, 54 men have won 500 total matches. Of all of the current active players, Alex Zverev is the one most likely on pace to enter that 500 win club. Honest to God, he's on pace to enter the 600 win club as well. But you look for him in his career in ATP level matches on grass courts. Zverev uh, has still only played 40 matches. He's 25 and 15 on the surface. That's good, not great. 63% win percentage. That said, he's gotten better on all the other ones, right? So there's no reason to think he can't be better on this surface come 2021. That's player number four on our list. Now, you had Berrettini at five. Number five for me is Stefano Tsitsipas, who we just saw, obviously, make the finals of the French Open. You talk about his last three major results, semifinals French Open, semifinals Australian Open, finals of the French Open now again. He's got the wind at his back, and you look for Tsitsipas, you think with his attacking tennis, that serve, that forehand, his willingness to move forward, grass courts could be good to him throughout the course of his career, but again, this is a guy who, because of the lack of the grass court season in 2020, uh, has suffered due to just lack of grass court match play. Gil, he's played 15 grass court matches at the ATP level in his career. He's 8-7 and seven in those matches. The return numbers are not pretty. You look at the times he's played Wimbledon. First round loss to the Deuce. Fourth round loss to John Isner. First round loss to Thomas Fabiano. I don't know. I, I, again, I have him up here just because of the way he competes. Because, again, talk about a guy who's completely different player than he was in 2019. I think you pencil him into the second week. Now, again, that's where the lack of grass court matches probably becomes a factor. I have him fifth on this list. I just don't think you can have him any lower at this point. I have him at number six. And, you know, I think, like, the the problem is, and I think, like, what, what should be emphasized more than anything is returning on a clay court in the style that CT Pass was doing so for two months that, you know, for the last two months and what he's going to need to do on a grass court. It's such a different beast. It is a completely different tennis shot. The technique is not the same. The timing is not the same. It's literally a different shot that he's going to need to hit. And we've just seen him kind of struggle, especially on the forehand, which he doesn't really block uh, on the backhand. He's actually gotten kind of decent at blocking the return back. Uh, the reason why I have Tsitsipas as high as I do, despite the fact that his his greatest weakness, which is return, is completely exacerbated on grass, and he doesn't defend his backhand nearly as well as he does on clay either. But the reason I have him that high is you still need to break his serve. Mm -hmm. That should still be difficult. The way he hits his forehand and moves forward behind it, uh, and obviously the way he's serving as well, it's still going to be really hard to break him. It's just... It's just he's going to need to figure out the return at some point. I think he will, like, again, and I think you you said this early on in uh, in your spiel. Got to mix in some Yiddish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that he, he'll figure it out eventually, that, like, he will be good at Wimbledon at some point. I agree with that, but this year just doesn't really feel right for him, especially just coming off that, that long and difficult clay season. Dainu, my friend. And yeah, you look for Stefano Tsitsipas. I mentioned those three guys over 90% in hold percentage, Rayonich, Isner, and Berrettini. Tsitsipas is fourth at 87.8%, and he has served as at an elite level. He is a guy who's routinely holding serve, and it does feel like on these grass courts, he'll find himself in a lot of tie breaks in a worst-case scenario. It's also worth remembering, he has made a fourth round here before. 
Like, it's not as though he's never experienced success at Wimbledon. And, you know, even his losses on these grass courts, losses to Isner, FAA, you know, Kudla, who's really damn good on the grass courts, they're not exactly bad losses. But it's just, again, what does he look like? When that backhand gets pressured with pace on these grass courts, will he be able to make enough block returns? Will he be able to get enough depth on that return of serve as well? It's a question worth asking. Now, again, it's just... Given the uncertainty for everyone else, who's going to beat him? Like, your guess is as good as mine. If it is a Yuri Vesely matchup in round number two or round number three, is that a match where maybe you lean Vesely? I can't in good conscience say yes. And that's just a testament to the success Tsitsipas has had over these last 52 weeks. You look for him overall. The guy is freaking 55 and 18 in ATP level matches. He's winning Masters events. He's making slam finals. At this point, again, he's earned the benefit of the doubt. He is number five on my list. Um, Makes sense that he's number six on yours, given you feel a little bit higher about Roger Federer than I do. Now, after these players... Things get funky because we said a lot of obvious names, maybe Berrettini a little bit less obvious, but just given his success of late, you have to throw him in the mix. I mean, is it disrespectful to not include Andre Rublev in the same tier as those other guys? We just saw him make a final of a 500-level event on these grass courts, the weight of his forehand. It just feels like his tennis works everywhere, and yet just for some reason— I mean, through no fault of his own, you look for Andre Rublev, it's not like anything has happened over these last 52 weeks that we should suddenly start doubting him. He goes to Hala, beats all the players he should, Basilevsky, Cole Schreiber, Thompson, Hatchinoff to make the final there. Yes, he lost to Struve first round of the French Open, but, you know, made that final in Monte Carlo, quarterfinals Barcelona, quarterfinal, uh, quarterfinals in Rome as well. Why does it feel like collectively we're down on Andre Rublev right now? The guy's 59 and 17 in his last 52 weeks. Shouldn't he be in the conversation with those other players, even though, again, limited grass court experience? That's why I have him in this tier. But it feels like he's not being talked about much. You know, people aren't saying, Gil, so often we say people are saying, people aren't saying Andre Rublev's a dark horse to win this Wimbledon. Should he be considered one? Yeah, I completely agree with you about people uh, kind of forgetting about Andre Rublev. I think it's because after Monte Carlo, he just didn't have great clay results. But I just don't think clay is his surface right now, especially just with his the the effectiveness of his serve and how vulnerable his kick serve is. Uh, I just think that he he had some some tough results on the clay, but I think the grass should suit him a lot better with the way he takes the ball early with the way he hits his flat serve and how he needs effectiveness out of his serve. Because if he gets effectiveness out of the, out of his serve and the court surface will help him do that. His first ball after that is so dominating, especially if it's a forehand and it usually is. So I expect Rublev to to play much better offensive first strike tennis on the grass, uh, not having to play the the more demanding long rallies, not getting kind of pushed into his backhand corner uh, as often. And what I love is his aggressive mentality. He is going to punish any short ball. He's going to be proactive. That's how you got to play on the grass. I'm really excited to see what he can do here because I think this can be his slam breakthrough. He has played four main draw events 
on grass courts and you know made second round Wimbledon 2017 quarterfinals hollow 2017 uh round of 64 2019 before getting knocked out by query and then this event here at hollow this year where he makes the final he does have 23 grass court matches under his belt though he's 14 and 9 and just again watching him in hollow how do you track down that forehand without guessing the correct direction Rublev's going to hit? Like, if you think he's going cross-court and he ends up going down the line, you're not tracking that ball down on a grass court. And if you leave him open space and a little bit of time to attack it, you're just not tracking that ball down on a grass court. And again, he does have that dominant quality where it reminds me of the runs Del Potro had. And I really, the more I think about it for a guy like Berrettini and, you know, guys like Rublev, I think Del Potro's the model for them. Just in Berrettini in specific, the way the moment he gets a forehand, it's a completely different rally. We saw Delpo have success on this surface. Now, the biggest difference was Delpo was six foot six, and that length on a grass court is that much more important. Rublev's footwork is so diligent, and I don't think movement's ever going to be an issue for him anymore. And with the quality he can play of power, or with the quality power tennis he can play, that's why he's at the bottom half of my second tier. That's why I include him in that group because if he's serving well, hitting, op- finding opportunities to hit forehands, he's just going to beat you. Like it, especially on a surface where you can't make the match physical and really pick on that backhand over the course of time. This just feels like a, a huge tournament for him yeah. because uh, I just don't think it, it just wasn't really going to happen at the French. It's disappointing to lose in the first round to, I don't know, Jan Leonard Struff as usual. But um, <laughs> and then even what who, in Australia, I'm forgetting Australia. It, it's been a couple of uh, results that have been disappointing at slams. If you compare it with the success that he's had at, at 500s, which he's Australia was the straight set lost to Medvedev, by the way. Right, right, which is just an Achilles heel. Same thing in the U.S. Open. Yep. He doesn't want to draw Medvedev. He hopes and prays not to draw Medvedev. Uh, and, you know, it's he's had some problematic matchups. Him, Tsitsipas, uh, at, at the French. He lost in straight sets in that quarterfinal. Uh, it's time for him to break through. It feels like it's coming. I think grass courts present a good chance for him to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. And again, just... If you hang a second serve on these grass courts, you're done because he's now playing attacking tennis and it's just that much harder to make up a deficit on these grass courts. But if that's the case for Rublev, after that, you really start to get into the what's your shade of player you're looking for. Now, I have three guys left on my list who I think belong in this top 10 conversation more so than anyone else I'm not proud of these three guys, but I'm ready to throw them in the list, right? I feel like if we're going 10 deep, let's go 10 deep. And the next name I have on my list at number eight and the lead of my third tier, the guy who's currently ranked second in Tennis Abstract's ELO rating, a guy who's made a Wimbledon final, a guy who won a grass court title in the lead up to this uh, Wimbledon event, it's Marin Cilic. And let me be clear, do I think Marin Cilic is winning this Grand Slam? Absolutely freaking not. Do I think there's a scenario where he's the veteran standing, where his length, his combination of power tennis, his serving puts him in a position to win the event? No, I still don't. But do I think he's in the mix for the second week? Sure. Why not? Like, again, just that length, that sort of power assertive front foot tennis presents problems on this surface. It's all about his head because yeah. I agree. Like, the the power game is there. It's just the head hasn't been the last two years, and I just don't 
I don't really see a scenario where Wimbledon is going to change that about his head, especially considering the fact that really a lot of his problems and his dis most disappointing results have been at the All England Club. Uh, the 2018 loss to uh, Guido Pela, and then I, I have it written down here, so I will have it in a second. He lost to Zhao Souza in, in 2019. So you can't lose to those players if you're Marin Cilic in 2018 and 2019. Um, so I appreciate the fact, and he's on my list as next out. So he's not in my top 10, but he's just uh, on the next out. I appreciate the fact that he's looking really good on the grass. I'm happy to see that. And he has the game to do well. I just don't know if he can hold his nerve. I hope he does. I'm, I'm genuinely rooting for him. 29 and 12 in his career at Wimbledon. You look at how many round of 16s he's made. He's done it on six uh, separate occasions. He's made the quarterfinals four different times. Now, he's only advanced past that quarterfinal stage once. It was obviously the year he made the final in 2017. But look, two of his three quarterfinal losses, five set losses to Federer and Djokovic, respectfully. Now, this is not that. Marin Cilic. This is not mid-2010 Marin Cilic, and the movement certainly isn't what it once was, and, you know, that length does make up for losing a step, certainly in grass court tennis in particular, but again, can he do that over the course of seven matches? I don't think so, but like, I'm fascinated. I'm going to let you take the reins here, because I think we've knocked off the same top seven, right, where our seven mm -hmm. guys are the same, although I, I think, you know, I have Federer at seven, or I think I have Federer actually at the start of this tier, so I think Chilich was my seven, Federer is my eight. Um, I want to open this up to you. Eight, nine, ten. Who are the guys rounding out Gil Gross's list? Because I'm curious if we have any overlaps. It's RBA, Hugo Umbert. And now it's FAA. It, it was team. I was sticking my neck out for team who I think, uh, again, I think people are once again, a la Medvedev Roland Garros, just over adjusting for surface. They're the Bitcoin and, right now. They're low. They're very like Dominic team is Bitcoin. He is yeah. much lower. And like, we know he's going to get back up because you look at it. US open time right around that time. Bitcoin was like that 55,000 range. Like, oh my <laughs> God, where are we going? And now they're probably hovering around 28. I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I know I'm buying up Dominic team stock. Yeah, me too. It's just a matter of when now I, I actually think he will likely pull out of Wimbledon with the wrist injury. So that's why I'll replace him at number 10 and, and we don't need to get, get too bogged down with him. But, uh, but to replace him, I would probably put Felix Ojealiasim, John Isner knocking on the door, but I'd go FAA. Interesting. So on my list, I have FAA Umber as well. Those are my last two guys. We'll talk about them in a second. Quickly make the case for RBA. So RBA kind of disappears around clay season, and this is kind of normal, and, and we forget about him. Um, and it, it happened again this time, and it, it, you would think, okay, he's not in good form. Well, it, it's his worst surface. It generally is like that. And then he has a knack for just bouncing back and playing a strong Wimbledon. He's 15 and six lifetime at Wimbledon, semifinal in 2019, two fourth rounds. He's really good when the ball bounces low. Uh, and you know he prefers low contact points. His flat strokes penetrate. It makes up for his lack of power. Good spot server. And you know, be before he hit clay court season, he made the final of Doha. He made the final of Montpellier, and then he made the semifinal of Miami. So I don't think he's necessarily done at age 33 either. 
Yeah, I, all fair points. I also think how he hits those flat shots, uh, that's just a difficult ball to respond to on these Wimbledon courts. His ability and something you have to do decisively on grass in grass tennis is go down the line. And his ability to hit the forehand on the run down the line in a direction you're not expecting – That shot is particularly effective on these grass courts. Now, again, he just hasn't been that successful late, and he lost an early match at one of these grass court warm-ups. Certainly, the three out of five set time, he's got a chance to find his rhythm. If he gets to the second week, I agree he's dangerous, but he doesn't quite qualify for my list. Hey, Cracked fans. Before we get back to today's episode, I just want to let all of you listeners know that all of the content we produce here at CR is made possible due to the support we get from our friends over at Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming equipment in the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That's right, folks. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. And in a twist of poetic justice, I think our friends at Manscaped know the grass court season is upon us here in the tennis world. In honor of that grass court season, they just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the Lawnmower 4.0. You can join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their most sensitive region of their body with this exclusive offer for you. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code new balls please at manscaped.com that's right they let us stick with the tennis theme get 20% off and free shipping with the code new balls please at manscaped.com and look a little personal testimonial i think anyone who's met me in two seconds will be like eyebrows thick legs very hairy guess what it looks that way everywhere folks and i can tell you firsthand manscaped gets the job done again get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code new balls please at manscaped.com and make shaving time your favorite time manscaped.com the promo code is new balls please on the faa and ugo on bear note Let's start with FAA. I've been a defender of his, I think, this entire time. I know he's 0-8 in ATP finals, but for him to bounce back from that loss to Chilich to make the semifinals the next week, beat Federer, lose a really good three-set match to Umber, who, by the way, he had beaten the week before in his run to the final. The weight of his shot, that first serve ability to play first strike, his willingness and comfort level moving forward, the decisiveness with which he hits volleys, even when he misses the volley, I appreciate that he never floats the first volley. He's trying to stick that first volley, put it away, and even when he, if he can't do it now, the skill is there, and I think it's going to start landing more and more frequently over the course of his career. You also look at the numbers for FAA. Quietly, he's gotten better at the margins each and every season now it's only like point for five percentage point jumps but the jumps are there he also is a guy who has made multiple grass court finals who comes into this uh Wimbledon event with as much grass court play here in 2021 as anyone in the draw like and I think you could say the same things by the way about Ugo and Bear who we've seen make a Wimbledon round of 16 before who just sort of has the slap, happy, dare I say, borderline tree at any moment game that works on a grass court. His ability, Gil, and we were texting about this, so I'm going to give, open up the floor for you as well. His ability 
to hit like a, a half volley pickup on the baseline and go down the line forehand for a winner. You're just like, are you serious? Like, who does this guy think he is? And it lands every time. You never know where Ugo Umber is going to hit the ball. Those are guys 9 and 10 for me. And I do think those guys, like, I think one of them ends up in the round of 16. I would really love to see this be the slam breakthrough for FAA, which is going to happen eventually. And I feel like tennis Twitter is thoroughly ready to embrace it. He just looks like a FAA, just looks like a different guy on grass. It, mm-hmm. it, it just, it simplifies the game for him. I think the critique for him, like when he gets on a clay court is like, Felix, you you can't just blast through this guy. Yeah. Like you need to construct the point, you know, you need to hit angles. Uh, you need to work it a little bit. And for that, you need to execute a bunch of shots in a rally. Uh, and with on grass, it just becomes very simple. You know, when, when, if I'm going to hit my forehand as hard and as early as as he can, well, he's ending points like that. And I was really impressed with the way he was moving forward and volleying, which is something I always feel like he's got good volleys. He just needs to trust them. And he doesn't come to net sometimes because he's just not trusting. Uh, and, and he does more so on grass. And when the serve is clicking, that's great. Uh, the only concern with FAA is just his confidence because it can just be fickle. It can just go away. Uh, and you know, that, that's kind of the question for me. What, if he's grooving, like if FAA is quote unquote hot out there, uh, you know, he's got like the flame emoji. If, if it were <laughs> NBA 2k, yeah, look out. Right. I mean, just look out. No, it's like, you know, backyard baseball. Is that a little after your time? Did you play no, that? No, that's my time. Yeah. Okay. Don't, don't um, don't it's slander not you aging like me. That. What's the opposite of aging? Yeah. Don't. cradle me i don't know or do you ever play (laughs) slugfest 2004 that might be a little bit after your time no that you got or before your time yeah so slugfest they used to have this thing where if your guy was on fire he would literally like go super saiyan and catch on fire and like he would have flames and if you tried to hit him with the pitcher he'd catch the ball and like throw it aside and start beating up the pitcher it's a fantastic game is slugfest um but you're right that's faa on these grass courts where it's just like he hits his own where it's like hey my forehand's going through you. Like, just let's be clear. This ball is going to be hit through you. So get out of the way. And just, again, the sound that comes off of his racket when he connects with a forehand, it's beautiful. It is everything you want as a tennis fan. The question is, we need to see it at the slams. And it's so funny because that five-set loss to Karatsev has clearly aged all right. But, like, that felt like the moment for him to get to that quarterfinal, make a deep run at the Australian Open. Now, the good news for him is it feels like he has a mulligan here because outside of Novak Djokovic, every seed feels vulnerable. And with the confidence he has, the decisiveness with which he can play, I think he's got to be in the top 10. Like, he just has those sort of physical weapons. And if I asked you him or Shapovalov who goes further, you probably take him, right? Yeah, especially because he loves playing Shapovalov. Uh, <laughs> the the concern is that if you look at like his top ten wins, they're like all Shapovalov. Um, so, but anyway, I, I think yeah. grass changes him. Let's get to to Umber, I guess. I would say first of all, the way he mixes up his serve in terms of location, and you know, he's the only guy. I feel like there's three options every time because he might hit a body serve at any given serve and for everyone else it feels like a change up and i just love the fact that he's like nope this is one of my serves <laughs> um and when he's on the ad side and he's slicing out wide 
And the way he changes direction on the next ball, or if you go down the line, he'll hit a cross-court backhand. And remember, we're talking about a lefty here. It's one of the most dominant grass court plays that I think you can possibly find. And if you're talking about how is how is Umber coming up with these insane kind of half volley change of direction shots, it's because he has like no backswing, virtually none. And it just makes his timing so good. On the other, you know, on clay, he just doesn't have enough pop. He doesn't generate enough pace. But when the ball's coming hard and fast, the way he can just redirect is insane. He is so perfectly, his ground strokes are so perfectly built for grass court tennis. It's unbelievable. And I'm really excited to see what he can do here. That's exactly it. It's the instincts he plays with. It's just, this is a guy who the moment there's open space on the court, he takes advantage of it. When it's time to play the drop shot, he plays it. That willingness to move forward, his willingness to go big on the return, the depth he's able to get on his returns to just keep the point at neutral, and the slaps. He just slaps. Like, let's be honest here. There are times he's like, I'm going big down the line. And it works. And like talented. Yeah. He's the shot maker. And especially after a brutal clay court season for him, and let's be clear, it was a brutal one. Um, His ability to bounce back his ability to just find that rhythm and play you know again the degree of difficulty in Hala to beat Zverev to beat Korda to beat Rublev to beat FAA every win he earned was impressive along the way and you know again we've seen him have success to beat Rublev in that final in straight sets to do four of the five wins in three sets this is a guy with confidence we've seen him make the round of 16 before that's something you can't say about a lot of the players in this draw who are of the highly ranked nature. So, again, I think it's totally justified to have Ugo Umber in that top 10. That rounds out the lists. Uh, again, to recap mine, goes Djokovic, one, huge gap. Then tier two is Berrettini, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Chilic, uh, or excuse me, Tsitsipas and Rublev, tier number three. Chilic, Federer, FAA, Umber. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Gil, but I believe you have Djokovic then huge freaking gap then you go Medvedev Federer uh, Zverev Berrettini Tsitsipas Rublev fill me out on the end there I'm, I'm a little hazy towards the end RBA Hugo Umber FAA yeah so again not too different the list we disagree most on Federer I would say which makes sense right like who yeah. knows with Roger Federer no, and you like, host three, the tennis show, or a tennis show, and I don't. <laughs> so, you know, it's good for don't, ratings if you have Federer third. I get it. I get it. Don't give me that. Don't <laughs> give me that. Uh, no, it's good for business. <laughs> I, hey, you got to take stick with it. Um, no, I mean, look, again, the emphasis at the top, this is Novak Djokovic's slam to lose. But what's really fun is outside of the presence of Djokovic, it feels a little WTA-ish in that anything can happen in those other rounds. And yes, we're talking about a lot of familiar names, but there are dangerous floaters. The Tiafos of the world, the Yuri Vesleys of the world, the uh, Alex Demonowers of the world. Just players, you know, there's going to be someone you're not thinking of, Cam Nori, who comes through and makes that second week, makes a quarterfinal. And that's happening more and more frequently in the men's game. And after 15 years of it not happening, that's something I'm pretty excited about as a tennis fan. So any final thoughts in terms of the contenders, the things we should expect to see at the 2021 Wimbledon? I agree. I'm really pumped. And uh, I'm watching Drive to Survive right now. Oh, there it is. Wait, hold on. Can I just say, I also cracked 
and I am now watching Drive to Survive as well. I'm like, how good can this freaking thing be? And it is actually all, all I've been saying around the house. I keep going, I'm like, box, box, box. Whenever box. I go into like our closet, I'm like, box, box, box. And I grab some Reese's or something that I go back to yeah, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like uh, on that note, one thing I, I always, from a distance, as someone who kind of knew about Formula One but didn't, I was like, why is this fun? Lewis Hamilton or Bottas <laughs> wins every single race. And I, I just didn't get it. So now I've watched this show and I've realized like, oh, it's the midfield. It's actually interesting to see like if Haas beats Renault, like and, and stuff like that, right? Um, that's what Wimbledon feels like here. Like we know Lewis Hamilton is a massive favorite, which is Djokovic in this case, but it's still super exciting to – to try to see like how the rest is going to shake out. It's another podium for Sergio Perez of Renault. Um, yeah, I'm just like people have suggested, and this is a good tangent to end on. But people have suggested, uh, you know, what what dis, you know, what uh, what would a tennis has to do this right? What would a documentary for tennis if they tried to do the Drive to Survive series look like on Netflix? I'm kind of skeptical they could pull it off because what are the stories? What are the intrigues? What are the personal rivalries and the pettiness and the animosities and the, you know, the competitiveness between teams, the driving for various championships, tennis, there's such individual events and each event happens in its own vacuum. Like, Look, Tennis Channel does something equivalent, right? They do the My Tennis Life where they're just focusing on one player. But I'm just trying to think, like, unless you amplify the rivalries between Azvirev, Tsitsipas. They're just like, because so many people play so many different events, it's not the same people facing off week after week. You don't have always Hamilton versus Verstappen versus Botas in the final three. It's not always that. It's Some weeks it's Zverev versus Umber. Some weeks it's FAA versus Dimenauer. Some weeks you get, you know, random Francisco Cirandolo or Juan Manuel Cirandolo final. It's just not as easily to script, in my opinion, as you can something like F1 Drive to survive because the characters are a limited and they're always the same okay first of all i love that we're talking about this yeah let's do it let's do this is the final tangent yeah i think that because you're like lasered in every single day you're forgetting how much happens like if you were to condense the tennis season into 12 episodes and like that would be twenty. That would be twenty nineteen. Right? I'm just For thinking example. about our podcast schedule and trying to condense all of our mini breaks into twelve episodes. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> god. But yeah, sorry, go on. So like, I don't know. Okay, we just had a tournament where Naomi Osaka withdrew because yeah. the Grand Slam board was threatening to, uh, you know, uh, default her for not speaking to the media. And then Roger Federer was like, no, I'm going to stop and prepare for Wimbledon. That's controversy. Like that's a show. That's an episode. Is it? Like, okay, I might be stretched. If they try and stretch the five minutes on Roger Federer, like, oh, the dramatic response, Roger pulls out. It's also, you're right, I'm so deeply engaged in the day-to-day. It was like, if you followed, like, the tennis, no he was pulling out. Like, that wasn't dramatic. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't, oh, tires blew on turn six. Turn six, we've got a crisis. (laughs) Box, box, box. Like, that doesn't happen in tennis. Or like, oh, they're they're banning the crowd. We've got to get the crowd out of here at the French Open. Move them immediately. like, it's just a little bit tougher to find those dr- scale drama 
in tennis. And that's just my concern is like, how do you create that drama? I think there's elements of it in world team tennis. And when there's a team environment, that's a whole different thing. But like, I'm trying to think it, do you base your episodes around like you have four episodes around the grand slams? Maybe you do episodes around each of the masters events as well, because that is at least the same cast of characters on both the men's and women's side. And again, the good thing about tennis is it does have both men's and women's rivalries to pull from. But there's just so much tennis, and it's so spread out. And so I just think it would be a little bit more difficult to pull off. You got to follow, like, a couple of players. And that's yeah, but where who do you that... pick? Because it's like everyone well, – no. the obvious answer is Kyrgios. Sorry, sorry. No, no, I got that. Well, okay, yeah. not this year. You don't follow Kyrgios. You're going to be in Australia the whole time. Yeah, so they uh, go to, like, the random five – see, is it bad that I would watch five minutes of Kyrgios partying in Australia <laughs> before I'd watch five minutes on Federer pulling out of Wimbledon? Like, that's well, look, the how truth. How about this? Okay, Sonia Kennan would be someone sure. before 2021. Yes. You would follow her. 100%. And I think, like, if she were willing to open up, which is, by the way, that's one of the issues here. 100 like, That's the a, unspoken thing. Like, no, yeah. the answer is unequivocally no. <laughs> okay, so let's say uh, I can agree with you. I think that would be a huge challenge. And honestly, maybe catastrophic. But if, if Kennan was willing to be like, this is what I'm going through right now. And and this is the drama with my in my team and stuff like that would be dramatic. There's another example. No, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Um, and like, but again, it's uh, yeah. Uh, the thing is, you'd have to get the buy-in from the top players, and I just don't think they'd be willing to do it. Like, they don't want. Uh, never mind. I was, never mind. I almost said something I, look, stupid. Look, I just think okay. it would be really tough. I just think it would be really really tough. Okay, I I, I get that, and I think it's different in F one because. I think like Red Bull wants the dock to cover them. Yeah, and, and you don't, don't have to manufacture you don't have to manufacture drama between Red Bull and Mercedes. There's genuine dislike between those two sides and they see each other week after week after week after week. It's always Red Bull in or it's always Mercedes in Red Bull's way and who's the head of that Red Bull team? Who's just the most lovably hateable man in the world? Oh, I um, love that guy. The little short uh, British guy, which is better than everyone. It's not my fault. Honda, uh, <laughs> Renault wasn't getting the job done, so we had to switch to Honda. Uh, I just, you know, uh, meanwhile, the Renault guy's like, we're not going to lose a drop of business despite losing Red Bull's engines in their manufacturer. It's like, all right, whatever. I just like, what is that in tennis? Box. Like, does, yeah, box, box, box. Um, but like, does Kyrgios come out and say, like, I'm done with Yannick's rackets and Yannick's like you will never hear from Nick Kyrgios again. He's nothing without a Yonex racket. Like that's just never gonna happen. Or like if they let us in on the sponsorship. Honestly, if they let us in on just the negotiations of appearance fees, that's a series right there. Like there are little elements for them to explore. Or mm-hmm. just like I would watch the pettiness of any time. I'm trying to. Th- what player do you think asks others to hit and gets rejected the most? Where it's just <laughs> like I don't want to warm up with that guy. You know, I hate hitting with him. Like, uh, you might, it's not the Sin Man because he's so new on the scene, but it's got to be someone who just hits like a stupid ball where you're just like, man, this sucks. Like, Pear. I don't want to. Yeah. But the thing is, he's such a uh, funny guy. Might, right. People, yeah. people probably think Polarizing. like, oh, like 
Right, like he's gonna make me laugh. Like, let's go hit with. Pear, they, they, all he's like, got to do is text Bernard Tomic, and it's like you want to go slap a ball around for fifteen minutes and then yeah. go get drinks, and it's like, yeah, I'm in. Um, but there's no way he keeps the ball in the court. Basilish Vili, no I'd be like, I'm not hitting with you, dude. All you do is <laughs> slap. Like this is stupid. <laughs> no, I want to get in a rhythm. Um, so that's the answer for me. And like the pettiness, or like again, I've told you my theory of a player just texting someone, "Hey, do you want to hit today?" And like just seeing that pair of dude no like this is our (laughs) job I don't do this for fun anymore um but yeah it's an interesting thought could there be a drive to survive what's the equivalent of box 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 what's the thing like the phrase that would come out of it that we hear all the time Mm. would it be like time violation yeah (laughs) code violation or like yeah I'm just trying like come on or just like something stupid like that also I would just think about all these things now you know like the one journalist they turn to in every episode who's like oh Red Bull had a bit of controversy this past season it's it's, are you gonna ask me who that is yeah there it is who fills that role it's John Wertheim (laughs) that guy see he's meant for that I think it's got to be Ben because it's got to be someone who inspires some ire. Who, like, you're going back, but you kind of hate him as well. And, like, I mean, I love Ben, so I don't mind saying this out loud. He'd be perfect for it because people would be so angry at him, people seeing the drama <laughs> through that lens. At the same time, they'd be like, ooh, that's pretty good. Um, but we can put that conversation on the back burner for now. That is, I suppose, figuring out the title, figuring out the mechanics of that series. Something you and I, hopefully they give us EP credits uh, when that inevitable series comes out. But again, Gil... It is always a pleasure to get the chance to talk to you, and I know you've got fun content coming down the way for all of your listeners as well. What do you have in the pipelines? What's on in the queue for this Wimbledon? Sure. Well, uh, round-by-round coverage of Djokovic and Federer through the Wimbledon draw on three, a tennis show, and uh, daily match analysis on the Gilgross YouTube channel. I will be looking forward to all of that. Obviously, you can expect some invites from me throughout the course of the tournament on our mini break podcast once again. Uh, I mentioned this at the top. Gil going to be one of our writers on our Crack Rackets 5v5 panel for our preview of the two Wimbledon events. So be on the lookout for that. will be interesting to see if Gil's fingers work as well as his mouth does. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing that writing more impressively. And are we going to see anything on the Action Network as well? Just getting all the plugs out there. I'll plug you for you, Gil. Sure, I appreciate it. Uh, pro- uh, probably some video stuff and some digital stuff, but it mm-hmm. might not be written uh, for, for Wimbledon. This is why you're rocking the sleeveless look, right? You were looking for how does that – it works for the digital if that's what you're going with. I'd say go sleeveless on those Action Network shots as well. You think well. so? Yeah, why not? You know, I'm is, sad the beard's a little bit gone, but yeah, go cute. Oh, is that mellow? It's Car- Carmelo 2003 vintage. I know you wouldn't know much about national championships <laughs> at, uh, at Michigan. No, I'm, I'm – I'm totally talking about it. I can't even talk. Like I'm talking No, no, it's fair. First of all, there's a Jerry McNamara streak in me. Come on. Or a Hakeem Warwick streak in me as well. I could tell you exactly where I was. So this is before your time. I don't even know if you were born yet. Um, but when that because it was two thousand three, right? That two thousand three NCAA championship, two thousand four, whatever. Um Yeah, I was I was I was born. Yeah, you were vaguely alive, Um, but there was this huge winter storm in Michigan, and so we had to go stay at my grandma's house for the week because she was the only one who had power, and so all of us cousins were at uh, my grandma's house. All the families were there as well, and we're up late at night. We're not supposed to be up in the basement watching my boy Kirk Heinrich and that Kansas team choke that national championship away to Syracuse and just, no, again, it was that's one of my... 
I don't know why that memory comes up, but whenever I see that Syracuse jersey, that's what I think of is that winter storm. Uh, but with all that in mind, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good team, I would argue. That was a damn good Syracuse <laughs> team. Uh, that was a fun one. That's one that certainly gets you interested in basketball. And I feel like they give you that Carmelo jersey if you're in the power chair at WAER, right? It's like, here is our gift to you. Take the Carmelo jersey. This is the role you're serving this year. We'll, we'll go with it. Sure. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't pay anything. I paid nothing. <laughs> exactly. That's all that matters. Well, Gil, thank you, as always, for taking the time to chat. It is a pleasure. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon. Grosky, always fun. Thanks again. Yep. Take care. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 